I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome to snack-sized episode number two of IntroVets. And today we're going to start off with some updates for our second regular length episode. That was about lab work for pre-anesthetic and wellness purposes. And in going back and looking at some different posts and articles related to that topic, I came across uh, what I thought was a really eloquent response from a veterinary anesthesiologist to a thread debating the, the need for lab work. And I contacted her and asked if I could quote her on the podcast. And she very nicely said yes. So I'm going to go ahead and read that information because I think it's really important. So the anesthesiologist is Lydia Love. She is a VIN consultant in anesthesia. She's also a clinical assistant professor of anesthesiology at North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. She says a good history and physical examination followed by targeted testing as indicated are worth more to me than random screening blood work. She goes on to say, It is true that occasionally you will find a serious and significant lab work result that is totally a surprise after a good history and physical exam, but it's uncommon. Basically, she's saying that most things should be detectable on physical exam. And then she goes on to say, Mainly, I get sad when people sell screening blood work as something that makes anesthesia safer, when the reality is that what makes anesthesia safer is good good monitoring, and supportive care. Preach. Yeah. Some unexpected findings might absolutely change the owner's thought process, but for the most part, aren't the thing that makes anesthesia safe. And when I read that, I thought we have got to put that information on the podcast just because, I mean, what she's saying is just so important. You can run all of the blood work in the world, but if you aren't providing good supportive care, I mean, IV catheter, IV fluids, heat support, balanced anesthesia. If you don't have someone competent running anesthesia for you, all of those things will contribute to a potential negative outcome. All the blood work in the world won't save you from a negative outcome if you're not taking those basic precautions. So it's tempting to get caught up in the lab work versus no lab work debate, but she's absolutely right. Where we can all agree is that really good anesthetic support is probably the biggest contributor to positive outcomes. While lab work is important, it's just an ingredient in the recipe. So, you know, having experienced, unfortunately, things going sideways during an anesthetic procedure, things happen fast. So having someone in there who their sole job is to watch that patient, watch the readings, make sure the readings are correct. Um, It's not just worrying about whether or not the patient may or may not be getting light, but is that patient starting to show signs of not surviving? So uh, and things can be perfectly normal. And then as Dr. G knows, sometimes I'll pull out the stethoscope and just kind of Make sure I'm hearing what makes sense. But she kind of knows my facial expressions. So she'll usually keep going until, you know, she sees that. And then she's like, is everything okay?" And if I don't answer her right away, that usually means I'm trying to decide. And if I start to shake my head, then it's time to, you know, crash cart. We need to, you know, make some quick decisions here. What What's wrong? And talk to the doctor about what you're hearing. Make sure everything's correct, but also do this in a very quick manner. You know, reverse things if you can reverse them. Do all the things to get that patient with you in a hurry so that the outcome is positive. But I've just 
worked in several hospitals where, you know, you may have someone that's, quote, monitoring, but that person is not in the room. That person may be just listening to the monitor while they're doing other things, helping other doctors. And to me, there's nothing that makes me more anxious than not being able to be in in the room with eyes and hands on that patient, making sure everything's okay. So that's the... Uh, that's my soapbox. Yeah, I'll, I'll climb down now. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's an important soapbox to be on. I have very strong opinions about this. It's inappropriate to advertise a high level of anesthetic care if you don't have someone who's solely monitoring the patient, a dedicated anesthetic monitoring assistant. That person needs to be actually trained. So it doesn't need to be someone that you pull from the kennel to write some heart rate numbers down. Unless that person knows how to take that information and make anesthetic changes, that is not in any way helpful. You as a veterinarian have the ability to read a monitor. If you're just having someone stand in the room and read the monitor to you, that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who is skilled and knows how to respond to changes. And when you're doing major procedures involved dentistry, if you're doing, you know, full mouth extractions, abdominal exploratory surgery, the list goes on. Any type of procedure that you're going to have to have this animal under for a little while, and it's not something that you can quickly undo and close them back up real fast. You you have to have someone with you who knows what the hell is going on. (laughs) I mean, you do. And Mm -hmm. it's it's impossible it's impossible to do both surgery and run anesthesia at the same time. You can't. People talk about multitasking. It actually doesn't exist. Multitasking is when they've studied, like, quote, multitasking. It is not a thing that actually occurs. There's a really good Hidden Brain podcast episode about this that everybody should check out. But people think that they're multitasking. They perceive that they're being very efficient. But the research, the scientific evidence shows that every time your brain has to change gears and focus on something else, it takes longer to reset. And even though you think you might be handling more than one thing at a time and being super efficient, you're actually taking more time than if you just focused on those things individually. I mean, this this is proven research. So... For every time you get interrupted and have to look at everything, evaluate, and then make an anesthetic decision, that's minutes slipping through your fingers where you could have had the patient done and off the table. So having someone who knows what to do with the information that is being recorded is like just a basic fundamental necessity. (laughs) Yeah, You know, I mean, it is. It is. It it is. Uh, and if you don't yeah. have that, you need to be very upfront with owners about the level of care you're providing. So um, I feel like, um, I mean, I see a lot. Owners kind of have this perception that anesthesia um, is like a playing Russian roulette. And I think it's because um, in the past or even currently, people have been too cavalier about it. You know, this... Uh, if you, if your hospital is experiencing a large number of poor anesthetic outcomes, um, that's not just like the cards falling poorly. Like you, you need to push the brake and step back and evaluate what's wrong. Like it's this isn't just a oh oh this just this shit just happens sometimes. This is 
no, the, no, no, no. This is a major evaluation time. And um, it's a anyway. good time to develop a checklist. Oh, yeah. It's a good time to develop a checklist. Absolutely <laughs> right. See what I did there? I did see. You just bring it back around, JJ. Bring it back around. Mm-hmm. In the um, in the bigger episode, we talked about the importance of checklists, and I mentioned that I had read a great book, and I didn't know what the name of it was, so I did look up the name, and it's called the Checklist Manifesto: How to Do Things Right, and it was written by Atul Gawande. I hope that I'm getting that name correct, and if I've mispronounced it, let me know, and I will. Um, I will do uh, an edit. I'm so sorry. Um, so Atul Gawande, and it was published in 2009. Okay, uh, that completes, I think, our episode updates. So we're going to go into story time. Yay, JJ, story are you time. ready? You want me to go first? Yeah, JJ has a <laughs> quite a story. <laughs> quite a story for you. So this story was uh, one that I actually, it's been probably... 12 years or more since I first read it, and it's still super hilarious to this day. Uh, it seems to have a anonymous person that contributed it, and it may not be an actual thing that really happened, but heck, I could see it happening. <laughs> You're saying like an internet veterinary myth, like a veterinary creepypasta, yeah, except without the creepy aspect? Well, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, this has been making the rounds for a long time. It has. Um, it's like it was originally posted in February of 2005. Okay. And the title is Grossest Pet Story Ever. Automatically want to hear that. Story time. This morning, I was assaulted by my cat in a way that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. My kitties and I have a morning routine that involves saying goodbye before I walk out the door. I was suited up, ready to go, and I walked over to my dresser to retrieve my keys. As usual, my male kitty was lounging on the dresser, waiting for him goodbye scratches. What? (laughs) (laughs) That's how it reads, so that's how I say it. Um, He stood up to give me my usual nuzzle goodbye, and then the most unholy of acts took place. The friendly feline stretched, and the force of his stretch caused his anal glands to express all over my face and in my mouth. Oh, gross. Ew. Now, a little biology background for those of you who aren't in the know. Dogs and cats have these an- these glands in their anus that get expressed, usually when they defecate. The smell is somewhat akin to rotting bodies that have been dry rubbed in... How do you say this cheese thing again? <laughs> Gorgonzola. <laughs> Thank you. That is the grossest description in history. Oh, it keeps going. Okay. Um, gorgonzola cheese and then oh. spit roasted over a pile of burning feces. Yum. <laughs> I mean, it's accurate, though. Uh, I mean, yeah. Maybe is. with a side of fish. Ugh. Uh, Plus, like all organic smells, it tends to bind to fabrics, which makes for a pleasant surprise when your cat rubs its butt on your sheets or couch. But nothing compares to being sprayed full on in the face in this heinous slime. At first, I thought there was a drip coming from the ceiling. I looked up, puzzled, and then the smell and taste hit me like a ton of bricks. The taste? <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> I don't. I've n- I've never experienced that, and I hope to the good no, lord I mean, you better that I knock never do. On some wood, JJ. I'm, I'm, Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. I mean, that's why, you know, I have a, a, a posture when it comes to anal glands, whether I'm holding or expressing it, that is head up and a facing away and mouth tightly closed. Because, I mean, it's been in my hair, been on my forehead, oh. but it's not been in my mouth. And I don't yeah. ever want that to happen because I don't want to experience that taste. I'll taste Albon, but I am not up to tasting anal glands. No, thank you. So anyway, continuing, I stumbled blindly to the bathroom shouting, I've been hit, I've been hit, puked my breakfast up and scrubbed my face, including my tongue for 10 minutes. The smell was still there. 
I called my wife in a panic, and she suggested that I call the vet. I threw up again, composed myself, and made the most embarrassing phone call of my life. Do not call your veterinarian with this problem. <laughs> yeah, not especially if you don't want to get laughed at. Yeah. Me. Um, hi. My cats are patients over by you, and, um, okay, this is going to sound crazy. <laughs> Never thought I would make a call like this. Long story short, my cat expressed his anal glands on my face, and I can't get the smell off. Dead silence. Receptionist. Hmm. Um, let me get one of the texts on the phone for you. <laughs> muffled laughter. <laughs> My laughter may not have been muffled. No. I have a problem with controlling that sometimes. Okay. I was then passed along to about four people in the office to explain my story, all while trying to ignore the howling laughter in the background. The best they could come up with was for me to try rubbing vinegar on my face. Desperate, I try it out. After wincing through the sting and rinsing it off, I realized that I now smell like a delicious ass salad. Mm. <laughs> like a vinaigrette. <laughs> <laughs> yes, vinaigrette no. and ass. <laughs> Good times. Oh, God. <laughs> my face rapidly began to dry out, making my skin feel tight and itchy. I slap some cream on and scream as the sting intensifies. Scrub, scrub, wash, wash. More panic ensues. And I hop on the horn to my wife once again. I need to get to work, but I can't go in public smelling like I bathed in eudicatas, can I? I mean, I guess you could just put some Axe body spray on top of that, and then oh, you're all set. So you can smell like teenage cat ass? Yes. Douchey cat ass? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we decide to pull out the big guns, and my final attack on the funky face problem is to dab Febreze on my face with a cotton swab. Sure, my face is blotchy and itchy from the chemical warfare it endured, but at least I smell predominantly like freshly washed laundry with a slight undertone of tossed cat ass salad. We do wow. not recommend putting Febreze on your skin. I'm uh, no. just going to go ahead and put that out there. No. <laughs> I'm sure all the odors wear off eventually, but the mental anguish of unwanted anal play is sure to stick with me for a long while. And that concludes my story. Oh, I mean, <laughs> that is insane. The horror. If someone calls you with that story, number one, don't tell them to put acid on their face, which is what vinegar is. <laughs> Like you need to refer them to their physician's office or whatever. Uh -huh. We we definitely don't want to give people dermatologic or what aesthetic advice over the phone. <laughs> like just if it involves a person, that's when I'm out. Yeah, I'd be like, you know, I mean, if regular face soap didn't take that off, um, I mean, if I was just dealing with this at my own house, uh, I'd just be like, hey, work, I'm gonna be late change clothes take another shower just start over because yeah if it's on your face it's likely in your hair and that may be where the smell's coming from right i mean or like droplets have landed on your clothing like it's what? yeah Ugh. i know i'm so sorry droplets is an upsetting word Ugh. but um yeah i think that hitting the reset button on that one is a good idea and yeah, then just start over yeah start over and if your you work at a veterinary if you work at a veterinary hospital they will like be like yeah i get it man if you don't, I think they'll still be the, horrified enough that you're not going to get in trouble. Especially yeah. if you type that story up and send it to them and they have something to laugh at you for. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, just the spell description alone would be like, I don't want you to come to work and sit by me. Yes, that is terrible. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, okay, so, and really we should say anal sacs, S-A-C-S, because they're not truly a gland. They're not truly a gland. They're anal sacs. Um, and I <laughs> enunciate that word. <laughs> I know where you're going. Really carefully. 
<laughs> because I've had owners on the phone and said the word like so medically correct you should say anal sacs but I've gone to using the word anal glands even though it's not medically correct because people often misunderstand it on the phone for anal sex <laughs> and I've had at least one client then say oh, she's a good girl she wouldn't do that and I was like what <laughs> and it took me a minute to get there shame your animal <laughs> I know right like also it's a dog like there is not like a um what any sort of kink well <laughs> yes I mean probably but there's also like not any kind of emotional situations for the dog surrounding this is like dogs are not people but this one time i was i was at work in one of my old jobs and i was really busy that day and i had just come out of surgery and was dealing with a patient i can even remember where i was standing in the office and what other people were doing like it's imprinted on me i was texting with a very good friend of mine dr plunkett a surgical specialist um who i've known for a long time thank god because if i hadn't had a close like relationship with her already <laughs> i would have died but i was voice texting and texted her about an anal sac surgery you know and just voice texted it and hit send and then cl like closed the phone and then I didn't realize that m my phone had auto-corrected anal sex to anal sex. And whatever sentence structure I used, it fit perfectly. Like, it with oh, no. the change w w made sense <laughs> in the sentence. Luckily, she knew what I was talking about. But, like, when I opened my phone up, you know, hours later, because we were really busy that day. So, I, I don't even have a chance to even look at my phone for hours. And when I opened it, new text from Dr. Plunkett. And I pull it up and it's just like crying face emojis. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? And I read it and I was like, oh my God. Like, oh my God. I cannot believe that I died. Oh, I don't even know. I wonder if she remembers that. It embarrassed me so much. I'm sure it's not the first thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can remember uh, texting... My friend, she had she was going to Sam's to get various things, and I always know that she gets a giant thing of animal crackers. She takes to work <laughs> and shares with coworkers. And when I texted her, I just said, "Don't forget your animal crackers," but instead, it autocorrected to anal crackers. <laughs> I, I mean, and that's still something that, like, I mean, that was years ago, and to this day, if she's in Sam's, I'm like. Anal crackers? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what anal crackers would yeah, be. What would they be? I don't I even don't, know. I don't want to mm -mm. know. No. Rather not. No, let's not. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. <laughs> Ew. Oh, boy. Okay. So, yeah. Let's just let's just run away fast from that topic. <laughs> it's just we're going to... We're just gonna hit the hit the brake, slam it into reverse, and just, uh, just drive no, away. You. Drive away fast. So we're gonna completely change gears now, okay, and talk about a, a non-anal topic, okay? Yay! Yay! Okay, dear introverts, I absolutely hate going to forced work-related social outings. How can I get out of these without being singled out as quote not a team player? And it's signed, introverted team member. Hmm. Interesting. I can yeah, see both sides one. of that. Yeah. 
I've been on both sides of that. You've been on both sides. That surprises me because I think of you as even more introverted than me, and I'm pretty introverted. There have definitely been times where it's even if it's an office that has a really strong, positive culture, um, there's everybody's really close and there's sort of event and I want to go, I still strongly feel the need to have a buddy, somebody that preferably for me, it's like a security blanket, like if we can arrive together and leave together. So Mm -hmm. having a husband, I have one of those kind of built in. But before I had him, I would definitely always kind of seek out like at least one person that I could be like, hey, can I like, you know, meet you out front so we can go in together or something like that. And it's really difficult to come across without sounding like I'm a baby about it. But it just I feel more comfortable that way. Because my biggest fear is to be at a social event, especially if it's like a crowd of people that maybe there's people that I know, but if a bunch of people have all brought their spouses and kids or whatever, and it's an even bigger thing, and there's people I don't know being just left alone, I'm going to immediately go to a wall, try to shrink down, maybe find the only animal in the house, and that's my companion. You know, the typical introverted things. Yeah. But it definitely also kicks up the anxiety by a thousand percent, and I immediately become super self-conscious even though everybody else is like not paying attention to me whatsoever i'm like everybody was wondering who is that person why are they here so yeah that typical freak out but if i have a buddy i can kind of stick with them i just try to you know usually i try to find another person who's like me and be like hey you know both of us would be comfortable more comfortable if we're in each other's company and we go and mingle together i'm a lot better that way yeah but uh Also, I've been on the end of being at places where it felt like it was expected of you to participate Mm -hmm. in these things. And even if that thing was even not something that wasn't fun or if it's something that uh, even maybe something that involves kind of working, maybe not doing veterinary medicine related things, but working in some other way, but you're not being compensated for it. That's the kind of stuff that I'm like, I would rather not participate in that. Yeah, that that's tough. So I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of layers to this question. It's just, as you said, from the introverted side of things, how can you approach this and make yourself feel comfortable But then the second question is, is it reasonable to expect employees to attend things out of work hours and make it kind of semi-mandatory? You know, like it's not mandatory, but socially and, you know, practice culture wise, it's kind of considered mandatory. And if you kind of don't do it, you're not going to be, you know, you're going to have less favor and stuff. And I feel very conflicted about that. I'll be honest. I know that it's important for practices to build teams that are close, but I am very introverted and as a veterinarian, obviously work super long hours a lot of the time, which means I have very limited free time and I don't even have kids, you know, but like I've been in situations before where for work. They kind of expected um, in it, not even just in veterinary jobs, other types of jobs I've had. They've expected a certain amount of dedication to outside social events that aren't paid. So it'd be like, well, you know, you worked X amount of hours this week, but we also have this employee and client dinner that you have. You know, you're you're not on the clock. We're not paying you to be there, but you have to attend x amount of hours of outside you know blah 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 and it's like come on you know yeah if we're getting into that you need to be paying me and if not that's a boundary issue and so i think setting that boundary and you don't have to be rude about it but 
in a polite way saying no. <laughs> yeah. No is a complete sentence. Yeah. And there's, you know, still kind of things that can kind of come into play. Like, say, for instance, even if I wanted to go, um, like really wanted to go, if I've had like several days in a row that I've had to be on and I've had to deal with a mm-hmm. lot of people. I mean, just like there was this scenario of where um, I was supposed to go to the uh, Stevie Nicks concert with you. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to go, really wanted to go, was looking yeah. forward to it. You're a huge, but, huge Fleetwood Mac fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say. Yeah, I am. Um, and uh, I uh, I don't even now remember what it was, but I had had several weeks in a row that were just really trying. And I knew that if I went, I would not be pleasant company. And I probably wouldn't have been able to enjoy myself as much as I would have wanted to. And um, I've pushed myself too far and made myself go to things before because as a young person, my parents, especially my mother, made me go to things even when I did not feel like I wanted to. And sometimes, you know, they were right. I would end up going and having fun. But there was other times where I knew that I was, it didn't matter how much fun it was, I, I did not have anything left to give energy-wise to other people. And if that's the case, then I know where my limits are and I know I need to stay home. It sucked because, like I said, I really wanted to go, but also didn't want, you know, everybody there to be miserable because I was going to be miserable because I knew that I was like maximum capacity of being around people. I needed recharge time. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really important for introverts to understand about themselves and then for people who aren't introverts to understand about other people is that being introverted doesn't mean that you hate people. It doesn't mean that you dislike people. It means that you are not in any way recharged by interaction with other people. It's in fact sometimes incredibly draining. And depending on the circumstances, it might be mildly, moderately, or severely draining, no matter what, even if it's a person you love and respect and have fun Mm -hmm. with. As an introvert, you still require downtime from that. And so, you know, if you've already, uh, as a veterinary professional, it's not unusual for us to put in overtime, even if it's not on the clock, right? Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be unusual when I was in associate positions to put in 60 plus hours a week between actual clinical responsibilities, note writing, phone calls, researching cases, talking on the phone to specialists about my cases. Between all of that, more than 60 hours would just like average week, you know, Mm -hmm. no big deal. Okay. Well, it's also important for me to stay active and I'm a competitive athlete. So then I got to put my training in. Okay. Working more than 60 hours a week already interferes with my training. Um, But let's say I need no less than five hours of training a week, but preferably more on the side of 10. Okay. So let's say, let's say we just put the five in where then you're at 65 hours, but then you got to sleep then you've got to clean the house. You've got a, your cooking responsibilities, you know, and I don't even have kids. If you have kids, like, man, throw all that out the window because, like, they take up so much time. Mm-hmm. You got to take care of your own pets. So by the time you add up all of the things, all of the work, domestic and outside that you do, then the remaining little sliver of time is your recharge time as an introvert. It has to be above a certain level or else I become very uncomfortable. And it's it's not just like a, ugh, I'm tired of being around people. They suck. It's like a, I feel 
exhausted. I feel drained. I feel I have symptoms of feeling sick, you know, mm -hmm. like literal stress type symptoms. Mm -hmm. I get real crabby. Yeah, you, it makes you more difficult to be around. And so then if you have people that don't understand that, then requiring even more social interaction from you, it makes me angry. And mm -hmm. I've thought a lot about how we would cover this topic, but I kept coming back around to anger. Anger mm -hmm. is how I feel when jobs have required those types of things for me. And I felt it was unreasonable. Um, and I try to bend over backwards. I mean, I'm a people pleasing person. I'm trying to get away from it. But like, man, if you're requiring on top of all of the other stuff that I do for your business, for me to then go socially interact with additional people, like I get frustrated by that. Mm -hmm. I guess I don't really know of a solution other than introverted people be honest in a hopefully more polite way than what I just phrased it. But <laughs> about, you know, I see where you're going. I know you want team building. This, unfortunately, is a problem for me because of the severe limitations of time or whatever. Fill in the blank with how you feel. What compromise can we reach that meets both of our goals? And that might be, I mean, I don't know, think outside of the box, but some other thing that doesn't require time and in-person interaction. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think knowing yourself well enough to know what your limits are. And even if, say, you had to plan to attend, it's okay to bail. I think if you work at a clinic that is the type of clinic you are going to be happy working at, or, or they'll take that into consideration. Yeah. I mean, I've worked at a place where I had to explain to the owner what an introvert was and what goes along with that. And there was a little bit of understanding after that. But still there was expectations yeah so know what you can and can't handle and and be honest and take care of yourself first absolutely all right well if you have stories for us this could be clinical cases they could be veterinary fun facts it could be crazy stories we'll take them all mm -hmm. please send them to introvets podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear them yes thank you guys for listening we appreciate it yeah, we'll see you next time bye bye